This episode is sponsored by Mountainside Beans. Beans, 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 the magical fruit. The more you eat, the more you resent your employer, especially if you're an impoverished cowboy. Mountainside Beans. Grab a can today. Hey Tanner, how are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm doing well. Thank you for asking. Today we are talking about Brokeback Mountain, the short story by Annie. Do you ever say your last name? It's a cool last name, but I can't pronounce it. <sighs> I I assume it's just Prue, but oh, I don't know. That's it might be it might Prulix. be Prul. Yeah, the, <laughs> Doctor, the, 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 Doctor Steve Prul. Doctor Steve Prul. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I'm talking about, right? Yes, I do. The John C. Uh, Riley character. Yes, so funny. Uh, let's just talk about that. No, uh, she is a writer, obviously. Then we have Ang Lee, the director. Those are two people in focus in this uh, adaptation. And how do you want to start this, Tanner? What do you think is a good as a good entry point? We've talked about her name, and if we can pronounce it, that might be a good entry point to go right into her. But if there's other things we think we should get, start with first, very happy to go that route as well. Uh, maybe uh, I feel like this is a uh, such a uniquely significant well i guess the movie but let's talk about how like what our first you know experiences in life with brokeback mountain were whether we saw it you know whether seeing it or just like Mm -hmm. what you thought about it because i feel like it was so part of the zeitgeist oh totally that really makes sense and in a lot of terrible ways too I, yeah, no, I, I, I totally agree. It was, it was really so omnipresent in culture. I feel like, I don't know, it came out 2005, right? Yes. And I don't know, like for me, I feel like it was like the butt of the joke. Absolutely. Until, until you got older and then you're like, oh no, this movie is really good. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Exactly. That's the same, same experience I had, which is so shitty. And I mean, like reading, I'd forgotten all the things about like how former maybe current i actually don't know utah jazz owner like got a bunch of oh yeah to not play it it. because it didn't represent family values it seems so crazy in hindsight because you're like i like i now know about so many other queer films from like before then but it really was the such a breakthrough mainstream one that it just pissed people off like in such it's it's like jazz owner was named larry milner miller i think yeah miller okay larry another larry miller larry Uh, pruel he Larry Pruel, Larry Steve Pruel. He like also very clearly had his boner tucked up into his waistband, probably. <laughs> uh, no, I don't know. It's it's. I I think unfortunately it's just been a long road. Like for as as far as like, you know, having you know anything that's with gay characters like in the mainstream. And to me, yeah, it was very much the butt of a joke. I don't know. It's. I feel like when did Heath Ledger die? His name. What 2008? Okay, yeah. Because I kind of view them similar like timelines. Because I feel like I just remember, I just remember in high school, there was just like, there was like every girl loved Heath Ledger, and like in middle school even I would pass that passed this one girl. I remember I'm just so obnoxious, but we, me and my friend would walk around. We do like we'd walk around all the lockers like every morning just talking, and there was a girl who had a poster had like a had like a People magazine cut out of Heath Ledger in (laughs) Ten Things I Hate About You. 
which we should also do because it's based on the Shakespeare play, The Taming of the Great. Shrew. I, uh, such a fun movie. Um, and uh, I used to pass this girl every day and I was in seventh grade. I think she was in eighth grade. And I would go, Heath Ledger, he's so hot. And then just keep walking. <laughs> but I mean, he's a phenomenal actor. Um, yeah, it's funny. I was uh, going to kind of say the opposite that it's like, I think it's just that in the moment things feel so much longer when you're a kid. But like, mm-hmm. I can't. I can't believe it's not butter. <laughs> they keep telling me this. Uh uh-uh. um, but that there were only three years between this and and the Dark Knight and him dying. Uh, I think that's well, just part of you know being a kid at the time. Uh huh. Um, you know because well, like that. Oh, go ahead. Uh, Sorry, I'm cutting no, you off no, already. No, 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 no. I I, I was I, just gonna say because I was also gonna bring up the Dark Knight, and I actually feel like that's such a good. If he had did it the other way, I feel like it might not that this matters at all, but it might have actually been because every like guy who probably aggressively like thought Brokeback Mountain was like gay, like love uh, the, dark, the dark night. Exactly. So it's like yeah. if they had done that first somehow, I think it would have people would have been like, wait, what? Or maybe people would have been like disappointed, like be like, fuck, man. Like, it's but so I don't know. true. Oh, my God. The Dark Knight. I remember because I was like super into movies but also mm-hmm. like mo- a lot of it was out of like christopher nolan and comic book movies and i like the dark knight came out over the summer and it was like i instantly made it like part of my personality i remember having dreams about it before it came out like all this <laughs> stuff and then i, I loved it i saw it, like five times then i got back to school and i remember seeing like idiots i went to school with wearing like dark knight like the joker shirts and i was like what the heck everybody likes this <laughs> I mean, like, it was obviously pretty explosive because it was like the biggest yeah. hit. Um, it it but... was ex- exceptionally a bigger hit than Batman Begins. I feel like. Oh yeah, like, yeah Batman totally. Begins. It, even the way that shot feels like it's more, like on the fringes somehow. You know, even obviously it's a mainstream, you know, comic book. Totally, movie. totally, and like people like it. So and like it was well received. So it's seen as like a hit in hindsight, but it was not close to what the Dark Knight was. Did um, I ever did I ever tell you about the Dark Knight um improv warm-up slash drinking game that me and Mike DeBicro <laughs> and Nick Ledger made up one weekend? I don't think so. Wait, wait. It's... Any real any relation? Oh, it's funny. I wrote that. Do you see my note there? Is that you said? Yeah, my mom, my my best friend's name is Nick Ledger, and my mom calls accidentally calls him Heath all the time. <laughs> it's so much funnier <laughs> that it's on accident and not like and a joke. <laughs> it's not a joke, it's on accident, and it's funny because their names aren't even spelled the same. He spells it with just a G. Um but uh anyway we had this we i don't know where it came up because i just randomly i think i rewatched the dark knight and i just kept going if colman reese isn't dead in one hour <laughs> so we would we play this game where it's like you kind of have to insert different so it's like you pick a celebrity if so and so isn't dead in one hour then i will blank so you pick like if if Hillary Clinton isn't dead in one hour, then I blow up the DNC. Like you just pick different. It just is really dumb. Um, it's like such a specific quote to make a whole <laughs> game out of too. Oh uh, yeah, but anyway, uh, my first so that was like I watched it in like I feel like I don't know though. I think I watched it once around then. I'm sure I had like a derisive attitude because. I it was weird because I didn't like have any specific issue with gay people when I was growing up, but I totally was raised in that culture where I said gay all the time. I was super flippant about it. Like, um, and then I went to Vermont and I would say stuff where I was like, I would say gay or I would say something and it would be really, and I, and Vermont, it's like very like the opposite. Cause I grew up in Pennsylvania. Vermont has always kind of been more accepting of, 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 you know, 
of the, of the LGBTQIA folk. Um, and people would, would like say stuff to me about it. And I'd be like, I had this moment. I was like, I don't even think I even care about that. Like I did, it was weird. Cause it wasn't actually attached to a set of beliefs. I was just casually like using a lot of homophobic language. You know what right, I mean? Like you realized you'd used it. And even though you didn't have any homophobic feelings and, and that surprised you kind of. Yeah. And then I, yeah. cause I, I would say stuff or make jokes where it was like, yeah, and I would do like gay voices. And then like, you know, I just did. And then I got more exposed to gay people actually met and it very quickly went away. And I feel like maybe that was when I wa- actually watched it. Like I appreciated it as a movie. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I don't know. Maybe that's a revisionist history thing. Cause I definitely, I don't think when it first came out, I was, I was like, emo- like, you know, in a place where I could appreciate it. You know what I mean? Sure. Sure. How about, how about yeah. yourself? Yeah, I remember. I remember, you know, obviously being a big part of culture and everything, and um, all the news stories about it. And then remember, I remember watching the Oscars and it being like a big thing that Crash beat it for Best Picture, which is like one of those instantly, infamously terrible Oscars <laughs> things. But then I didn't see it until college. I feel like I rented it and watched it in my shitty apartment. Uh, and I definitely remember my roommate walking out. And because I, I didn't tell him, I wasn't like, we're watching Broke Up Mountain tonight or like, <laughs> hey, man, I'm watching Broke Up Mountain. And he came out like in the middle of it, uh, like and was just like so confused because I like not even that I was watching Broke Up Mountain, but probably just that there was like a gay love scene. Mm-hmm. Um, but I remember really loving it, um, but then I haven't seen it since. Um, and that must have been like, God, probably more than 10 years ago. Uh, yeah. And if it, then, yeah, it, it is kind of the thing where it's like Heath Ledger, you know, Heath Ledger, like, you know gave this great mm-hmm. performance in the dark night then died and this is kind of well he is great in other things this is kind of the well the other like well the other movie that he's at least as great in is Brokeback mountain and that's kind of like where it where it lived for me for a long time um in that context okay um that makes sense yeah i feel like i i pictured that heath ledger performances I feel like he's just one of those he's just like kind of the actor's actor in a way so i feel like it's like it's very i don't know do you think it's his death puts like the 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 what's the word the rose tinted glasses where we think every performance of his is amazing or do you well think- i think so because i don't think until this i mean i think he was really well like like well liked and like a nice you know, tale yeah well yeah, yeah movies like that where it's like mm-hmm. that's probably not a great movie i saw it on cable a million times had a great time <laughs> with it or yeah. you know people love 10 things i hate about you but i really think it was i mean he's in monsters ball which i don't think is good but like was like a serious mm-hmm. movie a serious um, man he's in a serious he was movie. in a serious yeah. man <laughs> playing the titular man uh and he was very serious <laughs> but no, uh, he... go ahead Oh, I'm yeah, I'm sorry. I keep cutting yeah. you off in every episode. Um, but then he was the the people think uh, <laughs> that the Dark Knight was his last performance, but it was really the Imaginarium of Dr. Parnassus. Of course, Terry Gilliam. That? Yeah, where they had to the add the re- three other actors, which is <laughs> yeah, cool. That was a cool fix. Yeah, that um, is a, that is a cool way to do it. So, yeah, I guess that's a good point. So that it, mostly he was kind of just in big movies and was good in them. And I mean, 10 things about I hate, I hate about you. He's, he's so good. So, he's so charismatic. Oh like he's just it's so crazy. charismatic. It's like he's just so likable. It's the kind of um, yeah, he's got kind of, it's he's the kind of guy where like like you said, middle schoolers love him. But also I'm sure my mom saw that movie and a night's tale and was like, I love that Heath Ledger, you know, uh, he's he's just so good looking, too, in a way that's like. 
it's it's so weird because it's not obvious and extremely obvious at the same time. Totally. You know what I mean? It's it totally. I mean, I think you mentioned that there we we can discuss how in the movie these guys are maybe too good looking, but it's like a totally different thing than Jake Gyllenhaal, you know, mm-hmm. who is so stereotypically good looking in like a Hollywoody actually way. Where Heath Ledger, you're like he looks both normal and like totally yeah. other otherworldly he, at the same time. Yeah, he could be at like a diner reading a paper and you'd be like, Oh, that's a dude. And then you'd be like, wait a minute. <laughs> this guy's <laughs> This guy is the hottest man I've ever seen. And then the, for the short story, my way into the, sh- I didn't even know it was based off anything. Mm. And then, um, did you listen to S Town? I podcast? did. I did. Very, I don't very... remember whatever connection you're about to. <laughs> well, it's explicitly connected. Um, is did you like S Town? By the way, yeah, yeah, Fucking I really it. liked it at the time. Yeah, I thought it was really, really well done. Um. But anyway, so the last episode of S Town, maybe it's the second to last episode. I can't quite remember, but it definitely comes later where this guy comes out of the woodwork and he was like John B. Mac. What's his last name? Do you remember? I don't Mac, remember. Maybe McEnroe. I don't know. John. Wait, it's not John McEnroe. It's uh, John. It turns out that was a big twist John, of the podcast. Yeah. No, I know he goes by John B. And I think it's Mac something. But anyway, John B. This guy comes out who doesn't come out with his name, but he basically was like they were he was gay and John was gay. And they kind of own they had like they almost connected. I do remember this. Yeah. And then he sent him uh he was like trying to get John to watch Brokeback Mountain. And John was like, I don't have a TV. He's like, Okay, I'll send you the short story then. Um, and then John read the short story and really, really loved it. And sort of this guy, so this connection about this, you know, movie and 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 then short story. So that's when I was like, oh, I didn't even know it was a short story. And then um, I read it very quickly then, and I was like, this is good. Um, I liked it. And then I've said I checked out from the library and reread it uh, for this podcast. And yeah, it's a very, it's just a very well paced, very descriptive, just equal parts landscape versus character i feel like it was very well done yeah it's so it was a really interesting reading after having both seen the movie and like you know the kind of cultural osmosis of so many aspects of the movie even just like lines and seeing them in text in that context but it being totally different and also it's so the same and i mean the, the story is so direct and like mm-hmm. You know, almost like that feeling of, did I miss something? And, oh, no, that's this is what's happening. This is true. Mm-hmm. Oh, and some of the descriptions just, like, totally floored me. It was uh, really great. Do you have any of them? But I had not writing them down. Oh, I got some quotes, baby. Yeah, let's yeah, hear well, some of these quotes. I mean, like, one thing, and maybe this is more, you know, in the movie uh, realm, but just, like, as an active adaptation, it's like it's clever how some of, you know, the the prose is woven in as expository dialogue, I think, really well in this, whether it's in that first scene between them in the bar uh, mm-hmm. when they're just kind of talking about their past or whatever. But I uh, maybe I put this in the movie. I like the the visual adaptation of some of the prose is so incredible, like the line that's in the story that I loved, it was this during the day Ennis looked across a great gulf and sometimes saw Jack, a small dot moving across a high meadow as an insect moves across a tablecloth. Jack in his dark camp saw Ennis as a night fire, a red spark on the huge black mass of mountain and not, not even in succession, which would make a lot of sense in the movie, but they're side by side in, in the story. We get these incredibly wide distant shots from each character's point of view, seeing the other as a tiny dot in exactly this way, but realized so beautifully mm-hmm. visually. Um, 
And I just thought, yeah. I mean, that's the best kind of adaptation. And actually, I mean, maybe we'll cover this someday and I can't remember exactly what it is, but there's, I, I saw the film Greta Gerwig's Little Women before I, at least before I finished the book, I was reading it just because it was coming out then. I was like, oh, I should read Little Women. But there's a, a beautiful wide shot as well of when Chalamet and Florence Pugh like uh, kiss after he proposes. And it's like off, like they're, they're not in the center of the wide shot. Like there's more going on. Maybe they're at like a harbor or something like that. And it was so striking on film that in the book I read it, it was described almost like that exact same way. And it kind of reminded me of that. Just when you can adapt something like that to its without betraying mm-hmm. the medium that you're working in. It's uh, so, so impressive. Oh, yeah. It's like it feels like you're using whatever medium you have, like film has the edge on on, you know, pictures worth a thousand words, as they say, you know, so it's like the it's that writing is really great. And it's it's fantastic writing. But like, you know, seeing that that visually in especially with the the terrain and the and the backdrop of Brokeback Mountain and all that stuff, it's just like it just elevates it even more totally but it is cool that it is like but then it's also an extension of like kind of the spirit of the writing too totally oh exactly uh another quote i liked just calling someone who's who's uh circumcised dick clipped i never heard that before <laughs> i think i've heard that i don't know i feel like people should say banana clipped because oh that's, that's like good. banana clips what gun does a banana clip go in do you know i don't know neither do i um i think it's like me let's say it's an ak um yeah okay so there's that that's kind of my way in and um did you have any did were you aware that it was a short story i think i was vaguely aware and uh, also the the larry mcmurtry aspect is something that i feel like i learned and forgot like a hundred times like maybe (laughs) like once a year i'd somehow end up on like either his wikipedia page or the imdb page for this movie and be like that guy wrote but that's not but he didn't he didn't write the book but he's a book writer and the (laughs) and just be confused about that um <laughs> it is feel really random but it's like but also uh, makes so much sense yeah it makes total sense because i feel like he's one of the he's made the crossover you know a lot of writers do make the crossover to the silver screen but it feels like um yeah he it did i don't know it does because we were saying we should we should shoehorn some mcmurtree i didn't know it was mcmurtree i was saying mcmurty um do you know it's a, if it it's is a tr- it is tree. There, okay. or at least there's an R. Mer-tree. I don't know if it's pronounced that way. Big Murtry. Um, yeah, because we I didn't learn about him until more recently. I was listening to I was casually doing the uh cooking myself a meal and, and making a mess and then having to clean it up um <laughs> as one does in everyday life. Um and listening to a Charlie Rose interview of Tarantino, um, I believe, uh promoting Jackie Brown. And he said Tarantino, who Shout out is in Portland tonight, right now, this moment, but I could not go to <laughs> the talk because it was uh, sold out um, and his new book of essays, Cinema Speculation. Anyway, he said his favorite his favorite uh, novel probably was All My Friends Are Going to Be Strangers by Larry McMurdy. And I love Tarantino, as we've discussed in our Jackie Brown episode. And I was like, I instantly, I loved the title, like All My Friends Are Going to Be Strangers. It's such a good title from a, a country song, I think. Oh, that makes sense. I had no idea where it was from. I just was really attached to like all my friends are going to be anything. You know what I mean? Uh-huh. Um, so I was like, I want to check this out from the library. And then I checked it out from the library and I was like enthralled. Like as it was, it was, it's, it's such an easy read. There's so much going on. It's about a writer. I can, it's interesting though, because I feel like it's um, something too real quick. Cause it's Annie Prue 
she was talking about it on a, a different book, her 2016 novel, Barkskins. It has a lot of characters. It takes on a big theme. It isn't navel-gazing, dysfunctional family thing that's so beloved by American writers. And it kind of made me laugh because I was like, well, I feel like that's, I just love that kind of thing. And I feel like that's kind of what it is, what all my friends are going to be strangers is. (laughs) So it's interesting that then like Larry McMurtry, who maybe does this thing that she doesn't do, then wrote her thing so well with a co-writer, obviously. But it's very interesting. Um, Yeah, it's so fascinating. I mean, I I also read, I followed suit and read all my friends are going to be strangers after you. And it is, I've like, you know how, I mean, there are a lot of books like this, but the past like two months, I've just kind of constantly been like, I wish I was still reading that. Oh, (laughs) that type of book. It's one of those, it's one of those books. Yeah. Where I like, I liked my life when I was reading that book. It's such a good book. It's so good. And it's just like, I really like, it's a type of book where it's like, it's just it has, it walks such a line with with feeling with the protagonist with the narrator like you just can't decide how you feel about him but then all of a sudden you read something and you just feel terrible for him like yeah, and then yeah and then you're so entertained and then you also think he's an idiot and it's then so well, funny he's a complete then, idiot he's a piece of shit he knows he's a piece of, a shit. Piece of shit he's great yeah. <laughs> yeah he rises then he has a huge setback and in the way it's told it's all really funny and then it's such a cautionary tale for writers because that i'll spoil it so if you want to listen just stop the podcast now and go read it and then whatever but uh it ends with him like drowning his manuscript like he's had a full-on mental breakdown after all this shit has happened and he's like in this river and it's also foreshadowed kind of in the beginning because he says he loves reading books about rivers and and uh, and like mountains and stuff and he's like and i also really love because i'm not a big fan of westerns um I do like them and can appreciate them, but they're not my go-to. And this and and that book lightly touches on it. You know, there's like one chapter where he goes into this camp to meet an old relative or something in it. Right. Uh, anyway, oh, such yeah. a funny, weird section of the book. It is really weird. It feels super random, but to me, it feels like he's like dipping a toe in the genre back out again into this Hollywood yeah. writer type of thing. It it is it is interesting because it is like this would be one of his non-Western books because he's like a Western writer. Um mm-hmm. But then uh, anyway, long story short, it ends with him just like having a full mental breakdown just in this river as this one guy is chasing him like to because he thinks he's going to like basically kill himself. And he's just like drowning like pages of his fucking book like a crazy person. And it's so entertaining and funny. Um, but then I don't know. This is a question. And then maybe we should talk about Prue um, to you, Tanner, is like because I've been thinking about this a lot as someone who's interested in in writing novels and stuff where it's like. My tendency, like, you know, you want to, you're the, a lot of times you're the audience in your head. Like I, I want to write the book that I would want to read. Right. And I want to read this type of, book. I want to read all my friends are going to be strangers again and again and again and again. Uh, I just, for example, you bought me for my birthday or, or maybe Christmas. I don't remember. I think it was in 2021 wonder boys. Oh yes. Haven't read it yet, but then I picked it up today when I was at the new apartment getting settled in. Cause all my books are over there. And I just was devouring it i'm like yeah. this is it's t- yeah yeah it's exactly one of those kind of books <laughs> yeah. same same thing yeah so i have to I've, i'm gonna read that now and it's like but i get that that's like that's a very specific there's a very specific literary tradition where it's basically like a very smart protagonist who's engaging in self-sabotage and is like this unrecognized genius but then it's like so slice of life at the same time and hilarious and ironic that you're just you're just down for it and i feel like that's no longer a thing because the right because 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 literature is not the main form of entertainment you know what i mean 
It totally. feels like you have to have do your research, take on a big fucking topic, and have a third person narrator. Or if, yeah. if, if you're gonna do adult fit, not for if you're gonna do young adult and like for kids and stuff, it's obviously different. But that's my impression. So it's like that just does, doesn't really exist anymore. I mean, I do think of uh, you know, I mean, I know this book was acclaimed. I don't know how much of a hit it was. I don't know how much of a hit any books are, which is a whole thing. But uh, I, I also think of the the uh, the uh, Andrew Martin book. Um, Early work, early work. Yes, of course. Yeah. Definitely you feels also got that <laughs> right. Very good since, book since, since the theme, but that feels like it's you know in that tradition. Uh, I agree. I agree with that. I'm not saying people don't do it, but that's not a bestseller, really. Yeah, you know what I mean. No, it's a book. It's, it's like if you're ear to the ground on because right. you, you love reading, but that book, I feel like right. Me, Whereas, like I'm sure, with, like Wonder Boys yeah. was a thing that people yeah. knew about. You know, and that's the thing where I struggle with as someone for inspiration is because I've also read this before. It was like actually writing for a specific audience isn't bad, you know, right? Like if you want to write um, a book for children, that's not a bad idea. Like you're actually that's smart and savvy to do. Whereas like for me, I feel like I love reading. So I, I love reading books for the sake of good writing. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. But and that's just how it feels to me that like you have to win the Pulitzer Prize with like a really epic book about like World War II, some unspoken cat, like some facet you didn't know, like All the Light We Cannot See, which is a fucking phenomenal book. Uh, have you read that book? I have not read it. It's really good. But at the same time, it doesn't serve the same Right, it's, not, right, it's right. not entertaining. You're just like it's entertaining, obviously, to keep you going. But it, you're just like kind of like this is beautiful. I don't know. Am I making sense or not making sense? No, no, no. You're totally making sense. And I, I feel like Annie Prue is very much this other thing where she's kind of like you have to take on a big subject, subject. The subject actually fucking matters, and then you have to be really curious about it and do your research. And I do respect it. I tell you what, I don't know if it's the route I'd go, uh, but maybe I need to go. But I, I, I respect the hell out of it because uh, you have to. It's it's very, very tough. I feel like to make take on huge subjects and themes and make them into stories that people actually like. Um, yeah, I don't know. What's your favorite? What's your favorite book? If you like in the, the tradition we're delineating right now, kind of a big book about whether it's a time in history or a, a certain subject matter or a certain like trade. What's a what's a book that comes to mind for you in this kind of dense tradition we're talking? I, I mean, yeah, I don't know. I wonder if kind of like a postmodern thing like a Thomas Pinchon would like fit into that because that's kind of like I mean so unruly and funny, but also something like Gravity's Rainbow is about very much about something like that i mean maybe just because you say world war ii um i but i actually i thought of um uh as far as recently things go probably just because two of his books have won the pulitzer prize but of uh colson whitehead um i mean the underground yeah the underground railroad's great and like understatement and like uh has a that slight element of fantasy that's really interesting and barely there um but the nickel boys totally blew me away and is kind of straight just this thing you like you're saying this tragic thing you didn't know happened um you know in a fictionalized way um and that just totally blew, god that movie or that movie that book it is being adapted i just saw i think into a show oh, cool. um that book i probably maybe have said this maybe even on like uh destroyed me on a plane which i know is like a common thing but there's something of a twist in it and like i straight up like was just crying on the plane like as like turned a page read a word and was like oh no (laughs) no i gotta add it to the list uh Uh, yeah it's great 
he's a cool writer too because he i haven't read a lot of his early stuff his last book was straight up like a um a like period crime novel called harlem shuffle set i guess in the 60s in harlem that was like quite good but he's also written like zombie books and i don't know he he has a pretty varied output which is cool the only thing i really know about him which we've talked about was that he was spat <laughs> on by norman Mailer. <laughs> wait, wait, wait wait was it norman whaler or uh norman Mailer? what's up well I thought it was, uh, did he also get spit on by, God, I want to say John Ford, like the filmmaker, whom I think, Richard Richard Ford. He got spat on twice. He did get spit on twice. Wow. Or, or wait, wait, no, no, I'm asking. Oh, you're asking? I thought, I don't know, I I was under, I it's kind of a blur, but I listened to an episode <laughs> of the History of Literature about Hold literary, literary we, feuds, and one of them was the Colson Whitehead and Norman Mailer, and apparently Mailer spat on him. Um. No, it was Richard Ford. Spat on him? Spat on him. Maybe well, I know Norman Mailer, Mailer did, did something. He definitely yeah, did something. That doesn't surprise oh, me. Okay, well, I don't want to give more misinformation. I, um, I, I, know... I just want to like to say that I googled Colson Whitehead spat on. <laughs> uh, do you know that Norman Mailer stabbed one of his wives? I do. He seems uh, like a truly repugnant human, but he <laughs> writes very well. It's very, it's very conflicting. You're reading The Naked and the Dead, right? I'm reading The Naked and the Dead. It's very good. It's super long. I might get Proosted. We'll see. Uh, <laughs> Proosted. <laughs> Proosted. Um, uh, let's get Prooled. Let's get Prooled. Okay, Dr. Steve Prooled. So she, uh, I don't know if you saw this in my notes, Tanner, but I went to the same college as she did. Uh, oh, I totally miss that. She That's graduated really cool. from UVM. She's a UVM alumni. I don't know why why we always talk about our professor at large, Allison Beckdahl, who wrote Fun House or Fun Home. That's not that, any that's cruel. a cool one. That's I've cool met one. her. That is quite yeah, cool. I mean, not really. I didn't really meet her. I kind of you, did. You passed you passed the test. Well, no, she gave a talk and then like she walked by and the professor was like, Oh, these are some English students, and she was like, Hi. Like that was literally right. it. But I I was just making a joke, uh, because the Bechtel test is the Oh, the I passed things. the Bechtel test. Well, you know what's funny is that she she talked about that in the talk, and the Bechtel test is a fa- is like a joke that's it she did it as a joke and it kind of went viral that it was like a, a movie has to be feminist. Um, for a movie to be considered feminist, there has to be two female characters talking in a place that's not the kitchen, or uh, and they can't be talking about any of the male characters. Um, and she's like totally disowned it as like an like actual like metric, right? Yeah, More I don't think she was very sincere because she also said I think it was uh, she told us that she was in like Sweden or something, and then like was joking with a friend and her friend said that and she was like oh that's really funny i'm gonna make like a little cartoon and then it became like this whole thing and it's like right it's funny because like one thing that made me laugh because after she said that i remember i was re i was watching the life aquatic and um because i've loved that movie it's probably my favorite movie and then i just angelica houston and kate blanchett talking in a kitchen about the male characters i was like oh i don't know <laughs> i don't know if this is a feminist movie this is literally what they're talking about um but anyway Back to Annie Proust. So she went to, so she graduated from UVM in 1966. She gets her master's degree from Sir George Williams University, which is now Concordia. I think it's in Montreal. So she leaves a PhD program in the 70s in order to help support her family. She works as a freelance journalist writing about nature as well as how to and DIY articles about like cider making. Um, cool. Yeah, very cool. She seems like she's very backcountry and folksy. It was uh, during her, you know, this time when she was freelancing, her third marriage was falling apart. She lived with her boys in several backwoods towns in Vermont where they would hunt fish and garden. Uh, In the early 90s, in an interview, she describes herself as wild. 
the example she produced to illustrate this was included throwing a knife and thank God missing someone that she thought she hated driving north <laughs> in the southbound lane. Ooh, <laughs> uh, hanging out with a variety of rough dudes in a wide variety of situa- situations. What on earth could that mean? I'm hiccuping. Let me repeat this line and we can speculate. Hanging out with a wide variety of rough dudes in a wide variety of situations. I don't know what that fucking means. Rough dudes would be a good title for something. Rough dudes. Like it feels like that feels like that could be like literally loitering or like committing murder. She could be a killer, know. yeah. Uh <laughs> about this time though, she says. Uh, she, she also thinks she was not a particularly good or diligent mother. And it took her a long time to realize that she couldn't function in a conventional family, but in the present, she and her children enjoy regular get togethers. And she feels she's like different children from different marriages. And she feels like everyone gets along and everyone gets along, gets along and likes each other. That's that. I do feel like saying, uh, you have quote unquote, regular get togethers is like the the lowest bar of, of functioning family. They love their new stepdad. (laughs) (laughs) Um, yeah. Regular get togethers is a pretty low bar. I don't know. I feel like, I don't know. I feel like maybe my family would would settle for being like, we have regular get together. It would be nice. And nothing terrible happens. Um, In 1988, her first collection of short stories comes out. It's called Heart Songs and Other Stories. It's published and their following novels that get published earn her instant acclaim. Her first novel of uh didn't come out until she was fifty six. It was called Postcards. That's pretty inspiring. That's pretty inspiring that she's the Raymond Chandler of the Wyoming writing scene. Because he came on very late as well, but he's not. No, she's more like what fucking Elmore Leonard say, uh, more like Ernest Hemingway. I don't want to be compared there to Ernest Chandler. Anyway, uh, postcards illustrates. Uh, I haven't read it. Illustrates changes in American life with picture postcards mailed from the road by a character named Loyal Blood, which I don't understand how that's possible to name a character that. But it's over the period of forty years, and I feel like that was akin to Brokeback in some ways. Because oh, the totally. Postcard. I mean, a yeah. post, yeah, postcard even uh, features prominently. Yes. Um, and Heath Ledger, great handwriting. I hope that was actually his 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 uh, script there. Uh, she appreciates that her success came late. You know, she's I agree with this thing. And this is what I tell myself when I'm trying not to cry myself to bed. You have to have time to have a life to see change, understand a bit how people work, how the world works, how society works, how things shift around, how slippery things can be. Everything from politics to personal relationships. It's a great advantage to have that stuff under your belt when you start to write. Uh, Yeah. I think I think I think people who it kind of weirdly reminds me of someone he didn't say this like that, but in a different way, he kind of said it was Steve Carell is someone who's like a huge fucking star mm. who didn't get who didn't pop off until I mean, so he was funny. on the Daily Show. But, you know, right? I was like just looking at his age and timeline pretty recently for some reason. Steve Carell's like I obviously know that he didn't break through till his 40s in a big way but it was still like yeah cool to see that because i was like damn steve carell has like grown ass kids he does but like but he's like a just current like famous him. person yeah they really do <laughs> um and then yeah no he's he's steve carell's amazing i think we talked about this i saw uh last year and really made me laugh maybe it was two years ago all the my years are blending in covid but uh there was a march mat some some guy i presume is who was black t- tweeted like march madness of white guys <laughs> where it was like 64 different white like prominent white men and you had to pick which ones were your favorite and then the final was steve carell versus will ferrell and steve carell won. <laughs> that reminds me have you seen the the tweet that's uh 
there's the meme still of Wesley Snipes from the Abel Ferreira movie King of New York, where he's pointing a gun at someone and like weeping. Uh, but someone posted that with me when the race war starts and I got to kill Tony Hawk and Tony, <laughs> Tony, Tony, Tony Hawk replied to it saying, I appreciate the hesitation though. <laughs> That's so funny. <laughs> that was, uh, uh, there is, it is really funny, Florence. It also really reminds me of, I think I've maybe talked about this guy's jokes on air before. Uh, there's this Chicago comic who's now in New York named Jeff Asmus, who's super fucking funny. And I remember he just had some tweet. It was so silly, Florence. He had some tweet that was like, <laughs> all you feminists better not cry when your straight white grandpa dies. <laughs> <laughs> um anywho so um let's get back to it race war is killing tony hawk um let's see here the natural is a big focus for her this is something i feel like puts her it's i don't know i'm you know i did my little research but it's kind of funny because i read some things that she's super crotchety and she also says even says like takes issue with that takes umbrage with that being like i'm not i just you know this is who i am and i know who i am and it seems this way but like whatever because i think she got really soured on the success of the movie because then it made all these fan fiction come out. Right. And, I saw that. But um, she, I, the article I read about the guardian, it was kind of funny because it feels like so many fucking places do this. And I just appreciated her saying it basically. So I'll, let me say this quote, then I'll kind of contextualize what I'm actually talking about, but they're talking about, you know, the destruction of the natural world. And um she says, and assuming that they as political leaders, she's like, are still happy to re- rip out their raw materials and natural resources for things like refrigerators and iPhones. They don't seem to get there isn't that anymore. Nobody can visit the big trees again. The huge forests do not exist. The understory is gone. And the smaller plants and animals, the ecosystem has been damaged. Change is right with us, and you can get frightened. And then the while I'm talking about, then the writer, the interviewer, the article was like, well, what about Donald Trump, who like doesn't, who doesn't, uh like who got out of the Paris climate deal who like did X, Y, and Z, who doesn't believe in human made climate change. And she was just kind of like, I mean, this shit's happening. And so it's been happening. It's not the only person, you know, like they're very, this person was very quickly trying to attach it to political issue. And for her, she was just kind of like, this is just my personal opinion of shit I've seen. And like, fuck, you know? Yeah. Oh, that's so. (laughs) (laughs) um and then yeah so she's like Uh, loves 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 she lived in vermont in the backcountry for a long time she lived in then wyoming which is uh her her book of short stories called close range wyoming stories which broke up mountain was was in actually wasn't the lead piece it was the ending piece um and the the beginning the the opening piece was called like half skin steer and it was wreck like john updike i think said it was like one of the best pieces of short fiction he called it, like the best piece of short fiction in like american literature or something oh cool did you read the whole collection i didn't i read i just read brokeback mountain right you know, right i would like to yeah i only i read it in the just in the new yorker um dang is there is can i ask is there a story called close range is there a titular story as well i don't know i don't think because so. it also does just sound like a general story quote that this doesn't matter uh well, but it's always interesting like it's like a the you know it's like when an album's title song isn't even the hit or the good one mm-hmm. and you're like oh they thought that one was gonna pop off <laughs> it's one for them one for you <laughs> um but i was gonna say fuck 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 um 
Sorry, backcountry Wyoming. Oh, no, no. Yeah, well, it's interesting to your point about the close range. Um, if that was a, a story, uh, a story, Charlie Rose, our man in the YouTube channel that I watch often for these interviews, manufacturing intellect. Um, she just like she talks about how Wyoming is her writing place. She's just very charged. There's just so much going on. And for her, characters come out of place. So she picks like his Charlie Rose was kind of like, what do you admire about cowboys? And then she's like, I don't. And then he's like, ranchers. I'm using a general term to describe people who live on a ranch and do whatever. And she's just kind of like, well, these are the people that occupy the place. So I pick a place. That's kind of, it seems like her way in. She picks a place and wonders which characters inhabit it and um, X, Y, or Z. So it feels like Wyoming, this was born out of that. And I was actually really talk about, we we talked about it on our last podcast as I was switching location. So I'm sure we we're going to cut it out, but uh, talk about unintentional ASMR this interview hey. one, of these, one of these interviews where she's talking about Brokeback mountain the inspiration for the story is um she was in a bar in sheridan wyoming and she watched as an old cowboy watched some younger men play pool and she she, she made the note too that she was like pretty sure he was a cowboy who was still working at it because he had like cowboy boots on and they're all muddy and all this stuff she was said she was he was watching younger men play pool and his expression was very different and unusual she said it was very longing and sad and just odd and she began to wonder if maybe he was gay and then she started wondering what would it be like to be an old gay cowboy in a backdrop where it was like so on like you were asking to get seriously fucking hurt and she describes why she says this direct quote so i'm curious um if this is still the case she says wyoming people are vile homophobes to the point of death and destruction um pretty strong words there and i mean i think it's certainly backed up isn't isn't laramie in wyoming uh who what's laramie uh god is it like is that an acronym no it's a place but get ready to cut this out um because i feel like it's not my expertise it's where one of like the more newsworthy and significant uh homophobic hate crimes occurred Fuck, oh, I might know I'm, what you're talking about. Like there's the Laramie project um, is the name. Uh, yada, yada, yada. Oh, Matthew oh, yeah. Shepard. Yeah, Matthew I know what Shepherd, you're talking about. Yes. Yeah, the I murder of Matthew about. Shepard in 1998. And there was the movie, the Laramie project. And as of September 21, 2021, Wyoming does not have a hate crime law. Um, that's crazy. Oof. Okay, so it sounds uh, so it pretty seems like she, she was on to something. Um, I don't know anything about Wyoming. I was just kind of struck that she didn't like say some people. She just said all. She said Wyoming people. I mean, it's so sparsely populated and like backcountry like that. That doesn't surprise me. I've been to Wyoming several times and it's like the most beautiful place. And it does mean a lot to me in a weird way, despite not knowing it very well. It's kind of, there's like a family connection there. Um it does. It certainly feels. I mean, you can see it in the movie again. Not Wyoming, but mm-hmm. like that's. It feels spiritual. Um, oh sure. Um, isn't personal cue? That's where you scattered your father's ashes, right? It is. It's where I scattered my dad's ashes, and the only time I've done a drug was in. Ooh, well, Wyoming. that's not true. We. Oh, that's true. That's You're not true. Right. Wow. You, and you talked about it. Wyoming on and Ventura, California. <laughs> this it's a very Ventura is very. It's true. Spiritual. It's true. Um, and affordable if you want to have a a. a a men's retreat for your bachelor party um but no my my dad and my aunt both worked summers at um i think both yellowstone and grand tetons national park in wyoming um and yeah that's where i went there a couple times as a kid to the grand tetons and yellowstone and scattered my dad's ashes there 
five or so years ago. And I have a, a nice uh, framed photo from an aunt of um, the Grand Teton mountain range that hangs in my bathroom. And a lot of shots in this movie remind me of. Yeah. And well, I feel like Wyoming now, I mean, maybe always, but Jackson Hole in particular, like seems like it's only gotten wealthier and wealthier and like more of a place to, for rich people to visit. Like mm. Kanye operates out of there a bunch now, just even as a ski like destination. So I think that's kind of part of its, I feel like there's some sort of like new agey thing going, oh, going definitely. on there too, you know? I think people with like tech money were like, Yes. No, I don't want to be in San Francisco anymore. Yeah, this is the uh, new place. Yeah, well, I know that's true because uh, to some degree, because uh, we have we have two, we have a family friend and then um, a, uh, a a friend of ours from college who live in who live in Jackson Hole, and like love it and like uh, they just they're both like one of them is like she's very smart and has like a cool job as like an interior decorator for an architecture firm and they really like want to keep her and she's like i can never like buy a home here anyway so yeah um it feels like a lot of those places are and it's interesting because yeah a lot of those places what's kind of sucks i guess in a way it's like gentrification as well but it's like when you go to these scenic places a lot of them don't have robust economies so like it's not the type of thing where like when you're in a city you know, and people are moving there and whatever, it feels like maybe they have more, there's that natural competition. That feels like a Republican talking point, but it's like, <laughs> the, there's a natural competition where it's like to keep people there, they have to keep high, like offering higher wages or whatever. Whereas you go to a, a rural, a really beautiful rural state, they just don't have the same level. There's just not a, a diversity of, of, of occupations there. So you just kind of like, yeah, you kind of. I do. It's that kind of thing where you're in a small town. Like even when we were, when I was driving to your wedding in Vermont from New York City, that we passed through a couple towns where uh, my girlfriend and I were like, "This place is so adorable. <laughs> you could totally live here." And then after five minutes, I was like, "How do? What do people do? Yeah, like do you even, even just for here? money? Like who has all the jobs? I just don't I understand how economics works, but it's still, it's a uh, confusing." I know we have that same we have that same thought experiment all the time. I know I'm pretty uh I've said before many times that I, I could be convinced uh to live in a sleepy town somewhere. I could Seems be convinced. Because nice. I'm tired of the competition where I'm just like I'm just like I don't wanna like have to like work so hard to like have an apartment. Exactly. Um let's get to the movie, I think. Um do you think there's any I don't think there's anything Oh, we no. did touch on this just real quick about how I guess a lot of people fucking wrote to Annie Pru with their with fan fictions with a happy ending and it really soured her and makes her regret ever writing it, That's which is a crazy. little harsh. Because she, because she, I also saw she's quite. She initially was quite happy with the adaptation, right? Like almost shocked mm-hmm. how good it was. Well, because it's also yeah, I mean, you know, uh, Larry McMurtry and his um, writing partner, um, uh, God. I fucked up. <laughs> I don't have it in front of me. Oh, D- Diana Asana, who he wrote a lot of, like fiction with too, right? I kind of didn't realize that. I never uh, heard that that name before. I'm new on the Larry McMurtry scene. The, the uh, patriarchy yeah. is strong, but yeah, she wrote several books <laughs> with him, uh, but was his writing partner. And she's she has a, it sounds like she was much more, I mean, she found the story. Maybe that's why she has a producing credit, but was also on set. She has the producing credit on it, not McMurtry. Um, okay, but they both cool. shared just the co- the co writing credit. Yes, exactly, and they both okay. you know won an Oscar for it. Um, but she read it in the New Yorker, not ahead of time, and took it to him, and he he thought it was a masterpiece. And then they she worked on getting the rights. Um, 
or getting you know um prue to agree to let them write it and prue thought she thought it couldn't be a movie but let them anyway loved the script um did you see this that gus van sant was initially attached which yeah i did see that makes almost too much sense um you know he's from the he's from the pacific northwest so not quite there he's claimed by portland yes totally but i think i think like you know the 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 northwest in general really appeals to him the open skies the clouds i mean he made my own private idaho you know Mm. big new queer cinema landmark with open skies all this shit he made drugstore cowboy it's right there no Uh, you're right you're right it makes a lot of sense and Um, you know on the wake of this he would make his own kind of weepy awards play uh period piece gay film with milk um which I like, but I think it's much worse than this. Uh, yeah, I, feel like really. it's, I haven't seen Milk, actually. I've been meaning to. It's been on the list. Um, it feels like it'd be hard to com- really compare. Oh, yeah. It's a, like, honestly, I saw it was probably on freaking stupid Wikipedia saying that Gus Van Sant made Milk instead of this. And I'm like, that feels like you're conflating these movies because they're gay. Yeah. And like those movies were years apart. Um, I will. I will say and then maybe we'll say this. Um well, no, maybe this is a good shoehorn in. Or sorry, do you have a final point to make before I shoehorn in something? Oh, no, I, I was just going to say that it was almost Matt Damon and Joaquin Phoenix, which you can totally picture. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't think is they're almost too. Maybe this is like a superficial read on it, but I like <laughs> I like that Heath Ledger and Jake Gyllenhaal look different. Like Heath Ledger's taller mm-hmm. and thinner. He's blonde. Jake Gyllenhaal is brunette. Whereas Matt Damon and Joaquin Phoenix certainly look different, but they're kind of the same build and hair color you know i don't know that, that, that's <laughs> what so bothers di- me about that i feel like matt damon and joaquin like joaquin is like is like uh he's just such a different character actor though like i feel like they matt damon is such a straight-laced arguably unlikable person <laughs> that mm-hmm. like i feel like maybe they would have played up well off of each other i guess kind of. i was thinking i was assuming that damon would be ennis but it would have to be it being flipped and Joaquin is as Ennis Del Mar and, and uh, Matt Damon as Jack Twist does make more sense, you know, like you could see him giving that the Heath Ledger performance. Here well, that's what's interesting. Well, yeah, that's what in- I found this interesting because I, I feel like you would think when you read the character roles, you would think that he would play that Ledger would play Jack Twist because totally. Ledger is, is more Heath Ledger is more the character actor and he can he can be eccentric and Jake Gyllenhaal would be more of the the homespun countryman, kind of in uh, this is different, but uh, October Sky almost. Oh sure, you sure, know? that's like, a good person. So, to me, it was it's kind of interesting that because then, but that's what's interesting about that's what's so good about Heath Ledger's performance. I feel like is because it's just like a very quietly powerful character work. You know, it's. It's incredible how he, I mean, and you mentioned, I, I know we discussed that, or you compared it kind of like with the voice to Marlon Brando and the Godfather, but it is one of those things where the voice throws you for a second at first, at least it did me, because mm-hmm. it's such a specific choice, this this deep, quiet, almost like guttural voice that is obviously not what Heath Ledger sounds like, you know, even beyond his Australian accent, but it's such a choice that if anyone else did, it feels like it would be too much and distracting, but instead Mm -hmm. it like fully grounds the performance in this. It just like, it feels like it's totally tapped into this like coiled rage and repression and like dealing with masculinity. That's the whole thing for this character. Oh, I, 
Well, yeah, I mean, I want to make an incendiary point. I actually think his performance, I don't, I don't think, I think the Marlon Brando character in The Godfather is a little bit overrated because I feel like you're really watching him act. And sure. to me, he's giving a performance that you, you give in a play. Okay. When you're well, yeah. acting in a play, there's some physical characteristic I feel that the actor often anchors in and it and does his physicality. To me, I'm watching Marlon Brando like just go, no. Right. But like, right, he's, like right. doing all that stuff. And I think Heath Ledger is doing a similar thing. It feels like play acting to me, but for him, since it's quieter and it's like, there's, it's to me, it, I just feel, I feel like it's actually a, a more dynamic performance. It's such a weird thing to compare, but those, those are the two performances to me that come to mind where you're watching a character. Uh, I feel like hone in on a physical attribute and live in that as their character. Does that make sense? No, I know exactly what you mean. I mean, I'll take that. I think this performance is so good. Like, I think, like, just as a point, like, Jay Hall is really, really, really good in this movie. And I I think Heath Ledger is, like, a million times better than him. Like, I I think Heath Ledger, Jake Hall is a little bit miscast. Like, I think he's, okay. I think he's really, I actually think Jake Hall is really charismatic and is a really good actor. And I, 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 I like him a lot, actually. Um, He's, like, a good friend of mine. Um, But... I think he's just too boyish for me in this a little, but I think he brings it though. You know what I mean? I don't I, think he's yeah. bad at all, but I just think he's just a, maybe a little bit miscast. I, yeah, I, I don't disagree, especially based on the story, the way, you know, obviously you're making a movie in Hollywood. Mm-hmm. Everyone is so hot in this movie. They are. But and he, <laughs> but he, I find it's like, he like Heath Ledger and Michelle Williams in this movie and otherwise objectively are very hot. Did they awesome. meet on this movie? I believe so. Yes. Okay. Um, possibly hotter than Jake Gyllenhaal and Anna Hathaway, even. But it's like, to me, they're totally different. They in look a way like that real I people. think, I think it works in the movie too because I do think Jake Gyllenhaal is a little off, but it brings a different element that does make sense for his character. Where it's like you look like a pretty boy pretending to be a movie cowboy, and he is a real cowboy in the movie, and it's mm. not that, but something. I don't know, this is thorny, but like something with him being the slightly more uh out one of the two of them. It it his 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 boyishness and almost like fake cowboyness like adds to it in a way mm-hmm. where where Heath Ledger's the the like realism of his performance is more fitting for that character, you know? Okay. Um, I see what you're saying. Like again, I don't think he's bad. I think that's interesting that maybe But also the... that's so that's a well put that he's miscast but like totally brings it cuz that is yeah. also what it feels like. I I I agree. I do think he there's something that's funny too and we don't have to get hung up on this cuz it's just dumb too but uh it's really hard to jump in time in movies I'm finding uh-huh, uh-huh. and to spend your just with they have they they fully look like 28-year-old studs who have a teenage children who are now also hot and like right, um, right. but now they just have sideburns but that yeah but that being said it was funny cuz it was like um I actually bought Jake Gyllenhaal almost more as the older one then just because yeah. his hair was his hair was different and it was longer. He has more, yeah, well, he has more to play with the mustache. And it was like, yeah, he looked actually he aged more. And the final scene where he's like, I wish I could quit you or whatever. I thought that was like it, it felt like he did better at that than being his own age at the beginning. Do you know? I what agree. I, mean? I agree. It feels more real. Well, I think it's weirdly, I actually made this comparison in our notes that uh I prefer the uh the sideburns of um uh 
fuck what's the zodiac writer's name uh robert graysmith uh to, <laughs> to these sideburns but i feel like zodiac is a movie maybe it's because jake gyllenhaal starts out so boyish it's like easier mm. to age him up and that movie it's more much more subtle but i feel like it gets the aging over like 15 years of that movie it feels so real that he's 15 mm. years older even though not much has changed in his appearance in zodiac but you're right and it's it's so good in the I mean, that climactic scene and then when it flashes back to when they're younger and his mustache disappears and you see something that you didn't see from their first time on the mountain and then mm-hmm. it's back to him with the mustache. He does feel more real as the older version. Mm-hmm. Um, I totally agree. Yeah, the, the the time stuff is a bit is a bit tricky. Uh, it just is just the one way, the similar way I think film has it over literature as an art form with um visuals you know like pictures worth a thousand words this is the where literature has the edge i think you don't have oh, to yeah. suspend your you disbelief at all to see characters 20 years later right. and it's like do you cast or, i mean this is why boyhood is like a big deal uh mm-hmm. they're just like we're just gonna do it <laughs> yeah we're just gonna wait it out <laughs> this is a long play so crazy um, so and then one thing is interesting is we were talking about milk versus versus uh this movie i actually do think that call me by your name is uh can be in conversation with this movie because to me it's like there's 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 two things going on centrally and this is up to interpretation it's just my interpretation so the army hammer character and the gyllenhaal character both seem like they are gay men to me they're on the kinsey scale they are closer to gay and um Whereas the Chalamet character, there's actually something that that uh, Luca, how do you say his last name? Guadagnino. Guadagnino. I think does. I said that with authority. <laughs> so I think the Chalamet character and the Heath Ledger character are also close. They're closer to bisexual, and then they can have pot- there's potential for them to have meaningful sexual relationships with women. And there's actually a scene in Call Me by Your Name. This is and it's kind of it. It reminds me of a little bit of the two. But do you remember? You've seen Call Me by Your Name, right? Yes. So. Chalamet is like macking on that uh the Maria character, this the girl, this and he tucks a boner. It's very deliberately shot that like there's a car coming and they stop doing what they're doing, and he like tucks a boner. Like he is aroused by what's going on. You know what I mean? Uh-huh. And there's there's pretty intense sex between Heath Ledger and Michelle and uh uh Michelle Williams. Whereas the Anne Hathaway sex that happens, it feels like it's very symbolic. He's like almost like willing to let her not to not do it, you know. And she's like, "Am I moving too fast?" He like seems like so. So to me, I think the, these two at the center, with these varying degrees on the Kinsey scale, and how like it's like passing, you know. It's like the, one character can pass and maybe still operate in the world. The other one is doomed to maybe circle the outside of it. You know, and that's why at the end of Call Me By Your Name, I think it's pretty tragic that Army Hammer says he's getting married uh, to a woman because you're like, oh, fuck, you know, you're probably that's probably actually not a good fit for you. Whereas like Elio, the Chalamet character, the director has said, like, I think he could very well go on and have a very intense relationship with a woman, you know. I think that even happened. I could be wrong, but I think that it happens. There's like there's a sequel book to Call Me By Your Name. Uh, And I think that happens. Um totally speaking out of school yeah well i mean it's interesting because i was reading like that's a lot of the controversy some of the controversy because like of course this movie being like a trailblazing thing and the way it took queer cinema into the mainstream in hindsight is like there are some like problematic aspects of it um 
And I think the debate, a lot of people is like, whether they're like the obvious reading is that, you know, whatever, they're both by, um, but then at the time, he, there were interviews with Heath Ledger and Jake Gyllenhaal both being like, I don't even see them as gay or bi <laughs> as much as they like fell in love with this one person. And you're like, damn, yeah. that kind of sucks. But also it was 2005. Maybe they were being pushed to say that. And Jake Gyllenhaal has since described like it very casually as the character being gay. Um, I don't know. It's hard to I, you know, I don't know. I'm not experienced in this, but but the, I, I will say, yeah, Heath Ledger has and maybe this is. I don't know where this falls again, the language escapes me and I'm a straight guy, but, um, the, uh, it, both in the book and the short story rather, and in the film, he, he explicitly the only times we see him have sex with Michelle Williams, you know, he flips her around to have uh, mm. anal sex to her displeasure, which is so oh, ca- were they both anal? I remember one was anal. I was like, is this anal? Yeah, they both are. Well, Definitely both in the short story, and I believe I believe I don't think you really see how they're having sex the second time because it's from behind and she doesn't seem like she's in pleasure. Right, the first time he flips her around, and it's almost like they have the same kind of physical grappling negotiation that he has with Jack Twist in the movie. Um, But in the book, I remember, or in the short story again, it's so like it almost it almost I almost missed it like he mm-hmm. flipped her around to have sex in a way that she didn't necessarily like and then later it indicates that he almost only wanted to have anal sex mm-hmm. I don't know I mean I don't know how that works if anal sex is that you know that's not even necessarily part of gay sex or anything like that um but it is uh a- anal yeah. sex is a part of gay sex you don't have to <laughs> be so worried no, 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 but I, no no but I know I mean like uh like I, the whole I feel like this is kind of a recent thing where like a lot of straight people don't know that there are a lot of gay men who'd never have anal sex at all or whatever. Oh, like people who are not bottoms. Is that what you're saying? Or not what you're saying. I'm saying, well, A, there are gay gay men couples who don't have anal sex. Um, And I don't like, I'm saying I want to be careful of being like, I don't know that him wanting to have anal sex with his wife makes him buy or gay. gay. But that definitely seems, you know, uh, who knows? But also, yeah, he's not the one who has any other. Uh, I think he doesn't have the, sex with men besides well, Jake Jamal yeah, yeah. and Jack and Jack Twist does. We're just speculating, but I would imagine the intent of at least the director was probably to hint at this was that this was uh, um, a substitute for. Hope oh, and yeah. Have a, yeah, definitely. But then, you know, he has in the film, he has, you know, relationships with other women. Um I mean, mm-hmm. it's so interesting what the film fills in because it is so exact with so many parts of the short story. But then, you know, the the short story, I think outside of the mention that Jack Twist knew Aguirre, knew that they, mm-hmm. you know, uh, were lovers. That's the only time it breaks point of view from uh, mostly being with Ennis. But mm-hmm. then the movie obviously fills in all these gaps with you know jack and his wife the anne hathaway character who in the short story is only the only thing that's there is the phone call at the end with ennis after jack's mm-hmm. died but we get all this stuff filled in and uh it, yeah i never would have guessed that from seeing the movie that that's the stuff that was you know almost entirely invented um well the that's the thing that's interesting because i don't think i guess upon re-watching it i think um I think it's good. I think it's a very good way to expand the story. I don't I don't think it's takes away from it. I don't know if it's fully necessary. Yeah, it's just, it is like, well, is it just filling out the length and like the best job it, that can be done at mm-hmm. that? Um, I think that was a time, though. And this is there was a time where the where the 
um, double male protagonist was really hot, like The Departed. You know, oh, and I feel like sure. it's like it's classifying them as equal leads. I think I think that's yeah. the work it's doing. I don't think it's serving the story as much of giving them equal screen time and marketing it like that. Yeah. And it does, you know, and it, it like makes some moments hit later, like the I wish I could quit you scene. You know, we're like we mentioned, we're with like that flashback is from Jack Twist's point of view, you mm-hmm. know, um, and it's yeah. really sad. Uh and then then but I do think it, it helps because you you feel it more when it goes to only being Ennis's point of view at the end. Because which also I was watching this movie and he gets first of all, he you know is exchanging postcards with Jack and he just gets it back deceased, which is Ugh. it's so sudden and so striking. brutal. Yeah, just no no build up to it, he's dead. Uh yeah. which is again, I mean, you mentioned this, this is how it probably would have been. But I was shocked to see that there was a half an hour left in the movie. Uh yeah, right. And you really feel uh Jack Twist's absence. And I think that's because of the performance that Jay Gyllenhaal gives and like how he's able to fill in that character that I don't think you would have gotten that in the movie if we didn't go to his point of view and his life in Texas as much as we do. Um, mm-hmm. Even though I do think that's such an effective aspect of the short story is that we're only with Ennis. Um, yeah. And it's like Jack is this character dancing on the fringes. And I think it's interesting though, because Jack in the, in the short story then, uh, or yeah, is like fucking pissed about it, you know? And then he's right, in the movie right. too, where he's like, kind of like, I don't want to be on the fringes of your life. I want to be in the, the, the day to day. And um, yeah, so I think I think that's interesting. I don't know, but I wrote this down. Maybe we'll cut it out. I was pretty shocked to see Anne Hathaway's boobs. I was not expecting that at all. Speaking of the uh, different sex between the two. It's have, funny. You seen, have you seen her boobs in another movie? I'm genuinely asking. Yeah. Well, in other Jake Gyllenhaal movies, too. Love what other dr- love and other drugs. They have a lot of sex and she's topless. Um, OK, I, I think I only remember that because I remember that being like a thing, which is embarrassing, both when I want like someone even telling me that you see her boobs in this. And then when Love and Other Drugs came out, I remember someone being like, she's with Jake Gyllenhaal. And again, you see her boobs, (laughs) which is gross. Uh, They're a good pair. Uh, It's she's so cute. And I like uh, I mean, it gets a bit much when, you know, I like I like the gaudiness of her character and how once it gets into like, I guess, the 80s on the, that Thanksgiving scene, like their apartment is so absurdly decorated. Her hair is crazy. <laughs> um, I thought she she's so clearly turned on by him, like putting that her was down great. In place. I, I <laughs> noticed the same thing. I didn't remember that at all, because I will say the one thing more than any that I remembered about this movie the very end, A, um, but B, the I remember Heath Ledger kicking a guy and from the low angle of that guy getting kicked, fireworks going off behind his head and being like, that's such an on the nose, like awesome image. But there's that scene where like he asserts himself in this very traditionally masculine mm-hmm. way, like out of, you know, the West. Mm-hmm. Um, and his wife is kind of like afraid. Or, by like, it. Yeah. Yeah. But then the reversal of Jake Gyllenhaal even just threatening physical harm against uh, Anne Hathaway's mom and her clearly being all like riled up at the dinner table. <laughs> it was such a great counterpoint. Mm-hmm. No, it is. I actually think it's important to have representation of gay men in this way because there's so there's it's there's such a meme of what a gay man is. And I think now that's being broken down in all sorts of ways and but whatever. But like, you know, you think gay is one way, at least I did growing up. You know, you think it's an effeminate man who has a high pitched voice, 
Whereas like, I know in my personal life now, like I have very close friends who are gay, who are, I think more masculine than I am. Mm-hmm. And what they find and seek out in other people are very masculine men who do masculine things. And, and um, I think that is like, it's crazy. I, it makes total sense, but it's weird that you just don't realize that, that there are men who are, are exclusively attracted to men, but they're all about, they're, they're extremely, they're extremely masculine. I don't know. That seems obvious to say, but it's like, you don't, you don't see it often. In, sure. in and per- portrayed in, in media yeah yeah in, in the culture totally and it is yeah and it's like well also is he is this heath ledger is he you know um compensating for that by having these kind of violent out- outbursts both at the fourth of july thing or when he's walking home and the mm-hmm. guy honks at him and he just starts fighting him mm-hmm. uh but you yeah, know it well and the physicality is still like ugh, the first scene when they have sex where they like both know what it is but they kind of again like negotiate and grapple mm-hmm. with each other where you're like are they about to fight is that um mm-hmm. it feels so real it's it's interesting have you seen uh bros bros yes the billy no. Eichner, the new billy Eichner movie um, no um so there's like there's like literally uh stuff about Brokeback mountain in it um because it not only is bros like it's like you know the whole thing was it's the first mainstream gay rom-com made by hollywood studio um but they they like go he and the other guy who's much more traditionally masculine than him the guy he's dating is like a buff kind of jock um he's also a lawyer he's very smart mm-hmm. great great character um but they go to like a sad gay cowboy movie and then they get out of it and they he's like kind of the joke is that uh people think gay movies can only be like sad like Brokeback mountain oh yeah but then there's like a whole bit about how uh how Billy Eichner thinks he's not masculine enough for this guy. And they're at a park watching a bunch of dudes play football. And then Billy Eichner kind of starts jokingly beating him up. And like, they like are like fighting. And then all the football dudes are like, Oh shit. And run over. Like they're going to break it up. But then Billy Eichner and the other guys start making out and they're like, Oh, okay. No, no, that's cool though. (laughs) But then it goes into like this extended sequence of like, of them having sex and like kind of roughing each other up the whole time, both like, as a bit like they're playing around but it's also kind of real um and it was it's interesting watching this again because it's kind of similar to what happens with them except that here it's played totally serious but um but it was really cool i i also uh another thing reading the short story so in the short story you only hear that um ennis has been punched by jack or um vice versa rather yeah it's a very casual in a description right it's already happened and it seems like that'd be something that would be disastrous to like take from the short Mm -hmm. story and and uh, present it but that scene is so well done and so well acted Mm -hmm. where you're like they're playing around they're fighting for real they're pissed they're punching each other um oh yeah i mean i said that like uh I would say that to my when I was working after school program when boys would fake fight and I'd be like, guys, stop. And they go, we're fake fighting. And go, fake fights lead to real fights all the fucking time. <laughs> like, you know, like someone hits you a little bit too hard, it catches you and it changes your mood. Next thing you know, it's a it's a fake fight where oh my god, <laughs> where both people are crying at the end. I, I also um, loved, yeah. I thought uh, you know, something that a movie kind of has to do that seems obvious, but is so beautiful in, in the short story. And it's just finds his shirt that he had lost mm. uh, in in Jack's home after Jack's died. Um, never set up. You don't know that he's lost a shirt. But in here, it's so simple and obvious again. But they just put in 
them leave when they're leaving at the beginning Ennis goes i can't find my shirt and jack goes huh but you know the look on his face is like he knows where the shirt is and having just read the short story i was like oh my god i'm already heartbroken that they're setting this up and i know Mm -hmm. at the end he's gonna find the shirt and it's gonna Mm -hmm. be so sad and sweet it is so sad it's like such a simple movie setup payoff thing and it works so well it is. And to that degree, I feel like it's getting at it's, it's it's visually representing something that I think um, there's some review I read just on Wikipedia, but I actually thought this is really savvy and gets it kind of what we're talking about now is that um, they don't these characters don't have basically the emotional acumen to understand like what just hit them like a lightning storm, you know. And I think that's those are movies I really yeah, here it is. Here he goes. What drives the emotional attack of the film is the inadequacy of its characters to articulate and understand, let alone control the experience that strikes them like a storm. American cowboys of all people have no business falling in love with each other. Practical and conservative types of rough and ready manhood are by no means ready for man love. That last line. eh. But the first um, I just think I love movies like that, where someone. It's like Moonrise Kingdom almost where when when Sam is explaining to Bruce Willis where he's just like something happened to us that day when they were like dresses the when she's like what kind of bird are you where it's you kind of feel like uh, something beyond your pay grade is happening and you just have don't have the tools to fucking get it or understand it let alone control it or harness it to your benefit you're 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 it's you're at its will you know totally uh, I love it. First of all, love uh, beyond your pay grade. Great phrase. Good <laughs> Thank job. You. It's true. Well, it's actually, and there's even, there's a line from the short story that I, I wrote down that also reminded me of that. Um, it's, as they descended the slope, Ennis felt he was in a slow motion, but headlong, irreversible free fall. Um, and that's just totally that feeling. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, not having the emotional acumen, that seems so, so dead on. For me, this film is like, I don't know. I really like it a lot. It's definitely not a film. You, It kind of, it actually draws some parallels with the master. It's definitely, the master is more mysterious and weird and ultimately a film that I think is a better film, but that's not that it fucking matters. But um, I, this is a movie you can't watch frequently. I don't, I think. Right. Yeah. It does feel, I mean, I don't know what I was expecting. I was expecting it to be beautiful. I will say the visually, but like there's just the scenery. Ang Lee, I have this down. He's kind of like almost gets a both. It's kind of like, um, you know, uh, God, what's the phrase I'm looking for? The terribly common phrase uh, where you insult someone at hide it in a compliment. Um, oh, uh, backhanded compliment. Backhanded compliment yeah. um, that he's like a cinematic chameleon kind of, you know, because he's not typically a writer and he can work in so many diverse fields and genres. Um, but right when this started, I I definitely seen his sense and sensibility um, more recently than I had seen Brokeback Mountain. And that's a movie mm-hmm. where you would never think, I mean, that was his first fully English language movie. It's Jane Austen, this Taiwanese guy doesn't make a lot of sense great movie but the scenery in it is so beautiful like these open grassy fields in england the light and as soon as this movie started i was like well this is a thing that angley can't help but be great at is (laughs) shooting scenery obviously it's shot by rodrigo prieto who's a great you know cinematographer who's got who started with you know uh inaritu and now works with scorsese but oh my god the compositions especially in the it's 
stunning. Like I paused mm-hmm. it so many times and not even just the scenery. It's so beautiful. The tableau when, when Ledger's like basically throwing up and punching the alley wall and he's totally silhouetted uh, with and framed by the alley. It's just, mm-hmm. holy shit. It's such a beautiful movie, but it's I, really I, well framed. And then I, would, I also, okay, sorry, go ahead. I was just expecting the movie to feel more dated than it does. Like, uh, both in its place in history it, it all feels so real i think the only thing that feels dated to me and maybe you felt differently and maybe other people do too uh the flashback to um heath ledger being oh shown, yeah it, it, it feels just feels like, weird yeah. it feels like that could be that's a really powerful upsetting thing and i think they were trying to make like no this is real consequences yes i think it gives the it gives weight to it but i don't think it I, it feels it feels shoehorned in there I you know what i mean it feels like because it's also like color graded in a strange way or it feels aesthetically off and it feels mm-hmm. like ledger just saying that story would have been more effective um mm-hmm. and it also just feels like i don't know but it also was you know we've had a lot of gay stories since then and maybe people will know that like you don't have to be as i don't know garish with that kind of violent stuff um yeah i don't i, I think maybe it's it maybe in a way it's a nod i don't know what the what's in the mind of the director but maybe it's a nod to to the garish violence of the west like of the mm-hmm. western movies there's not really a ton of violence in this at all there's a couple fist fights maybe it's that's true yeah because visually it is so in dialogue with like you know i mean john ford you know john ford's whole thing we'll look at the horizon line and this movie is just full of you know you're like god he knows exactly how to frame this it's so Mm -hmm. beautiful and feels meaningful in ways that i don't really get even um well no it's interesting though too because when you were saying that it's i uh about just the shot composition and stuff i actually really noticed the texture of their clothes more in this oh, and it's, i wonder if that's anything to do with if there was anything to do because i just noticed that they had the cord he's got that corduroy jacket he's got mm-hmm. denim great jacket and, and i almost texted you being like or like or made a note about it being like can you it's am i just like a wimp like can you really be warm in that stuff <laughs> like you know what i mean i wear those type of clothes all the time i'm always like a little bit cold like i would never wear that and i live in like not you know i lived in la and then I lived when they're Portland, getting rained on whatever. in the mountains i'm yeah, like just in so that. fucking cold they don't or even have they... hoods <laughs> so much of there is it's so i know it's hard work but i'm like god do i just want to like herd sheep and like they're when it's still in happy times they're hanging out together when they skinny dip cliff dive i'm like that mm. looks like i would do that with a bro right now <laughs> looks like I've so been, much fun i've have you been skinny dipping i've never been skinny dipping oh, and you i gotta know do i would love it you would the thing that's strike struck me about i've been done a couple times but the first time i skinny dipped i was with ledger and then two of our friends from college who you've actually met at my wedding and um the two guys two girls and we went after we graduated uvm and we just like went to north beach and just like got naked and went in and I, it was profoundly non-sexual like oh, it was sure. it it totally felt like you were like bathing in the earth uh you know like i didn't feel like it was like there was any thing like sexual about it it really felt like it was like a return to origins right right i <laughs> bet it felt like baptismal almost that's really yeah. cool yeah um, i would love to do that uh love to eat some beans great like some uh, there's so McCarthy. much it's yeah it's crazy how uh so much of the dialogue from this movie it's notable is from the short story like i wish i knew how to quit you jack twist <laughs> jack nasty who could forget um <laughs> but uh there's so many like just 
diamonds of, of dialogue lines. Like I love when the guy who brings them food is shocked to see him switch to soup. And he says, I'm sick of beans. And the guy goes, too early in the summer to be sick of beans. I was just like, that's <laughs> such a fucking good line. It is funny, but I will say that guy was very stereotypically Mexican. I know. Yeah. He goes, wonder... he's like, Senora, like the beans. Like he literally talks like that. And I was like, I don't yeah. know. Yeah, I yeah, don't yeah. know. Totally. Uh yeah. I agree. Um, yeah, but let's see here. Um, I probably have to hop off soon, but I don't I do want to give Ang Lee his moment in the sun as well. And I know you did. Oh yeah, we didn't we that. didn't really uh yeah, just I mean Ang Lee is super I mean it's also interesting that this is uh his second um film uh, about you know gay male characters. His his uh his second film he made, uh The Wedding Banquet, uh which is a wonderful film. I, I I should say I honestly I watched like half of these when Blank Check did Ang Lee a couple years ago. I had seen the big ones, but there's some smaller ones. But the Wedding Banquet is like a Taiwanese American film um, about uh, a Taiwanese man who who lives in New York and is a you know out gay man in New York in the late eighties around the AIDS crisis, and he has a male boyfriend. Um, but his parents are coming to town from Taiwan, and basically I can't remember if it's that they pay a woman or if it's a friend to pretend to be his wife so they can have the titular wedding banquet, which is a big like part of their Taiwanese culture. Uh, and his boyfriend has to pretend to just be his best friend. Mm. Um, really cool. Like, you know, slice of life, but also has that funny concept. Um, but yeah, you know, Ang Lee, uh, you know, from Taiwan ended up coming to America for college after doing, uh, after going to school in Taiwan and serving his mandatory military um, time. But he went to the University of Illinois, Champaign-Urbana, right? Good school where my my aunt is a nutritionist. Shout out, Aunt Susie. <laughs> um, but then he went to NYU for film school where he you know, was a peer of Spike Lee, which I knew, but I didn't realize that he actually worked on Spike Lee's uh, thesis film, which um, has a great title called, uh, what is it called? Oh, Joe's Bedsty Barbershop. We cut heads. <laughs> Great title. Um, but yeah, then he went back to Taiwan after after college, and this is cool. Submitted two scripts to a government-run uh, screenwriting contest. They were they got first and second place, and both were his first two movies. Pushing Hands, The Wedding Banquet. Haven't seen Pushing Hands, um, but The Wedding Banquet. He or sorry, after The Wedding Banquet, he makes Eat, Drink, Man, Woman which I'd always heard about because it's another great title, but that's fully set in Taiwan. It's kind of like an intergenerational uh, family saga. And so those first three movies are known as the Father Knows Best trilogy, but they kind of got him enough acclaim. You know, he won prizes at Venice and Berlin and those movies were nominated. The second two were nominated for Best Foreign Language Film Oscar that he then made Sense and Sensibility off of Emma Thompson's script. And then he became like, you know, an English language director. Uh, He made The Ice Storm in the 90s, which have you seen The Ice Storm? I have it. I think you'd like it. It's it's good. It's uh it's a 70s set like family drama, like set in suburban Connecticut mostly. Um I oh. guess it was a failure. I I know it is I feel like it's pretty prominent because it has this thing called a key party. Do you know what a key party is? Yeah, yeah. It's I, it's funny you said I know a girl I know was an improv group called the key party. That's like when a bunch of people get drunk and all put their keys in the bowl and stay the night and then sometimes do it yeah well yes but it's uh in the movie at least i guess it was a thing in the you know 
70s more prominently among bored it's all about like you know the the ennui of suburbia in the 70s and how bored and dark it is uh but all these parents have a party where you all bring keys and put them in a bowl and it's all like couples together married couples and everyone picks out a key and whoever's key you get you are paired off with it's like a swinging party Mm -hmm. but i feel like the ice storm has cultural staying power because like because of that and that's like the biggest movie featuring a key party so you can (laughs) say like you know like in the ice storm um Anyway, that that movie. That's I how guess, you convince your wife. Have you yeah, seen? Have you ice seen Angley's The Ice Storm? The Ice Storm. Um, but basically, that fails. He makes a Civil War movie called Ride the Whirlwind. Um, or sorry, Ride the Whirlwind is a Monty Hellman movie with Jack Nicholson. Ride with the Devil. Uh, I haven't seen that, but he's Tobey Maguire's in it. Also in the Ice Storm. Sounds good. Was a failure. But then he goes back to Asia, gets a bunch of money from a bunch of different countries, uh, and makes Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, which is. Such I did not realize he head. made it. That movie's fucking awesome. Isn't that crazy? It's yeah. so awesome. I mean, he really is a chameleon in such cool ways that he can do these different things. Uh, I, I was entranced it. by that movie oh when it came god. out. Oh my god. We had it on DVD and we'd watch it in our Lincoln Mercury Villager. Such, that's awesome. <laughs> Such a DVD movie. You know, an, like, yeah, it's like I the remember main... it exactly. Totally. The, the, the red and uh, text and their, it's like our the, backdrop and then the it's three funny, characters. Yeah. Because I feel like the, the DVD movie from when it first started is The Matrix because that's like when. Oh, DVD... that's a great DVD movie. Because that's Austin, when it started. Austin Powers, Spy Who Shagged Me? Totally. <laughs> <laughs> but it's funny because uh, The Matrix is like other wuxia movies, which is the tradition of like, you know, the the Chinese film with like the, the wire work and the martial arts, um, mm. but similar thing. Anyway, it was such a big hit that basically he could do whatever he wanted made Hulk, which was derided, but a big hit. And I think is actually totally interesting. I've seen it since like, you know, as a kid, but it's got all this weird comic panel stuff where the screen like divides into comic book panels. It's like very psychological where there's all this action, but then the climax is him fighting his dad. Who's like a cloud, Um, (laughs) but it's cool. Uh, Anyway, that was a failure. And then he made crouching tiger, hidden dragon, or sorry, he made Brokeback mountain off of that. Mm-hmm. Won the won the Oscar for best director. Brokeback Mountain was a huge hit, really cool. Uh, then he went back to Asia, made Less Caution, uh, a period piece like thriller with a bunch of explicit sex stuff. That's really cool, kind of like a spycraft thing set in Japanese occupied Shanghai. Also based off a short story like this. Um, but then he kind of like I haven't seen Taking Woodstock. People hate it, which makes me want to watch it um stars dimitri martin very 2010 uh oh, that is very 2010 does he have so a picture weird. board that he draws on he actually yeah that's the whole movie <laughs> he has to keep it i some of his stuff is dimitri martin i think it's hilarious. really smart and funny i agree um, um like i remember he has one bit that i think about all the time it's like i wish graffiti was more neutral like toy story 2 is okay it's <laughs> <laughs> really funny um so that that movie was a failure, but then he made Life of Pi, and it's like Angley was obviously always by the start time he started making big bigger movies. I assume with Ride with the Devil, the Civil War movie, but certainly with Crouching Tiger and Hulk, he like is a kind of a technical genius. He's able to orchestrate these things at a high level, you know, with effects, um, big budgets, but they still have this air of prestige. And then he makes Life of Pi, which I don't know about you, I never read the book, but it was a huge book when I was a kid. Huge I feel book. like, yeah. Um, and the movie is like a big, not only is there a CGI tiger and all these set pieces, but it's like still in that era where like we're doing 3D artfully, you know, like mm-hmm. Avatar and Hugo. Um, and I feel like that kind of 
just turned his career in the direction of focusing on the technological aspects so much. I mean, he's only made two other movies since then, but so Life of Pi, a huge hit, and he wins another directing Oscar for it, um, which I think is kind of dumb. Fun movie, uh, really cool looking. It it does feel like sometimes I, I so dumb to admit that I did this, but uh, I got on my news notification on my iPhone. It was like the sec. There was like BuzzFeed. It was an article in BuzzFeed about like people's sexiest man. Do you see this? It was like the oh. sexiest man alive then and now, and I yeah. fucking clicked on it. And then, like multiple people, including Richard Gere, won multiple years and like more than once. It's like <laughs> it feels like you know that it's even worse than an Oscar. I feel like I agree, you should but... not be allowed to win that multiple times. I kind of feel like best director you should be able to win once. I think best picture win because that's the real best director award, isn't it? Don't you think it's like you, you think that's you made the best picture. <laughs> right, and now Life of Pi is in this area where they they're splitting more often. Like Life of Pi didn't win Best Picture, but he won Best Director. Um, anyway, and neither did Brokeback Mountain. Brokeback Mountain again famously lost to Crash, which was seen Ooh, as like yeah, you know, which Annie Prue called trash. <laughs> wow. <laughs> yeah. Honestly, good burn. Uh, I saw. I. It's one of those movies that the thing is though. I don't know. We talk about this a lot. It's for like the general public, right? like a vaguely don't be racist message has impact on real people. I hate that it does. You don't need, you shouldn't be need to be told that. And when I was a kid, you know, I remember I was like when the guy shoots the blank and you don't realize it's blank. um, I was like, Oh, and then there's like the Brendan Frazier, Sandra Bullock care uh, pairing there and like ludicrous robbing them when they were like, just did a micro uh, microaggression to him. I think there's um, also I think the one that stands out in my head is Sandra Bullock getting severely injured because she's racist to her cleaning lady and her cleaning lady like doesn't dry the floor popular properly. Oh, I don't remember that at all. That's like the <laughs> That's end terrible. of her character. That's terrible. That's awful. Never mind. I, remember, no, I, take, sure, I take back everything. I just, I just said. I'm sure you're right, though. I mean, it's true. Uh, well, that's the thing. I said this to you. We were we were both critiquing. Don't look up. Don't look up. Kind of sucks. But like the most people, but and my brother liked it. Other people liked it. Like like people who aren't like you know we are we're so into this and we want to do this stuff that we're like. Where, but like, I think if Don't Look Up was a better film, it might have had a smaller Less. audience. It's true. The most effective in a broad way, like films probably are worse. Um, yeah, like Gone Girl, as much as we love it, like that movie was like a was a worldwide and book was like a fucking phenomenon, you know, whereas like Inherent Vice, like we get to be cool because we're like, we like it. And like, not many people like it, but people are starting to like it. We hope not too much. So we still see not cool. too many. Like, uh, yeah, not too many. I go back to school um, after summer and some idiot I play basketball with is wearing a Doc Sportello t-shirt like it's oh a Dark Knight t-shirt. You got to fucking kill him. Um, So that's where I have. It's like the end of the day. I think sometimes you lose sight of the fact like, you know, like you're trying to make in theory, you're trying to make movies and make art for real people. Yeah. Um, And I think sometimes that's why I think this movie is really effective because it's a mainstream movie with huge stars with terribly good looking people in it. That is interesting and uh, visually stunning, emotionally resonant. And like the end of the day, it's maybe not where I'm what I I'm going to gravitate towards because I like a weird eccentric thing that I can seem cool about liking, but I think it's like for what it is, is like 
a 10 out of 10, you know? And it, I mean, it is so artful, both in the visuals, but the last 20 minutes, I think I mentioned this to you. It's just like, as soon as Jack has died, it's scene after scene of like each time I'm like, oh, this is the saddest scene I think I've ever <laughs> seen. And the next one is sadder, you know? It's I mean, pretty hard. You should also say, I didn't remember any of these now somewhat famous people being in this movie. Like, like when, Kate Mara? definitely kate mara Who actually it's weird she looks all. just like though she looks like if anne hathaway and heath ledger had a that's, baby that's funny they that's look really funny. i was just like staring at them like what if really that looks was like, like yeah, we, we should looks... start that like internet theory that it's actually about how <laughs> she cheated on jake jolito with with heath ledger um linda cardellini i didn't remember anna ferris pops up anna ferris I... this is murderous row of hilarious women Linda Cardellini is really good in it too. That scene where she, you don't know how much time has passed, but he's clearly bailed on her and she shows up to the diner with another guy and sees him and confronts him. I was crying. It's so sad. It is really sad. I I was just saying this to Corey and I actually think this could be its own movie. It would probably get really back mm-hmm. a lot of backlash, but I do think having a like women are ex- expendable and disposable in the closet gay man story because it's like, you're already like, well, it's okay because he's the there's he's discriminated against. But you see actually in this movie quite well with Michelle Williams, um, and Hathaway not as much, and then a little bit with Linda Cardelli actually, um, that like you know, they loved these men like, and it's like sucks because it was unrequited. But like you know what 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 Ennis actually does is really selfish. You know, I mean, it sucks that it's like he couldn't he wasn't in control of it. So in some way he doesn't really have culpability. I think in a lot of way. A lot of ways we don't when we when we catch feelings like that we can't we have to be responsible for our actions but i think it's kind of impossible but you know like he leaves their family essentially high and dry and then he doesn't even take responsibility he even says to her like oh she's like i'm worried about you you're alone all the time you should get married again and then he's like burn i've been burned once he says something like that oh. and she's like kind of like are you fucking kidding me <laughs> like you had a gay romance for like five fucking years i didn't say shit i just wanted you to provide for our kid and pretend to love me and we would still be together she didn't say all that but it's like underneath and i just think that's interesting like how lone it's almost like a veteran's wife you know no, like, it's like- true and it, well it's like i mean i think even just in in prestige like oscar movies like this it's such a problem to and usually in the way of uh and i sure this is michelle williams has done this uh i have to think of sienna miller who's a great actress and seems saddled with only these roles it's the wife of the great man role Mm -hmm. you know it's kind of the same symptom you know where here it's like the terribly depressing story of uh you know repressed uh homosexuality and uh love that can't be the real thing but yeah these women are kind of pushed to the sideline when they have such a story too i do think god she's obviously so good michelle williams she's like the best actress but um all of their like the tenser scenes are so feel so real mm-hmm. and I'll, i will say i laughed aloud when he's screaming at her for going to work and leaving him with the kids and then he just goes the kid the two daughters are on <laughs> wings and he goes do you guys need like a push or anything they're like no and then he like kicks something he's yeah so- but when they fight at thanksgiving after they're already divorced that's so scary and feels so real but yeah he leaves without even saying goodbye to his daughters yeah that was really sad that pulled in my heartstrings as a father of a daughter that he just kept saying she kept saying goodbye and he just didn't say anything the last uh i'm sure this affected you too but the last kate mara scene where she tells him she's getting Mm -hmm. married and he's like at first 
says he's not going to go to the wedding and then changes his mind and realizes mm. he has to just the look on his face the whole time i oh it's so sad i was just watching the movie like life fucking sucks yeah it does well i mean that's why though like i feel like i don't know like that's why it's beautiful well that's why it's beautiful but also like it's just comparing the two of ennis and jack it's like jack doesn't seem to i get it. it's like very easy to be like look we deserve to be happy but uh it's like have you seen, you've seen funny people right uh-huh you know how like seth rogan is like to adam sandler he's like i think your happiness is going to come at the expense of this entire family <laughs> and it's like ennis is kind of like look jack like i love you but like let's be honest if we get caught we're gonna get fucking gay bash and die on the side of the road but also, like, I have children, like, you know, yeah. like, I, like, care about them. And I don't think he, Jack seems like he doesn't care to me a little bit. No, I mean, well, you also hardly see his son. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah, or at least he cares more about their love, you know. Um, so I don't, I, I don't know. And then another thing, too, I remember, I'll just shoot on this, maybe we'll end on one more thing each. Um because I have to get back to my family who I think are beautiful, mad, beautiful who are maybe family. mad at me. <laughs> I'm always worried that they're like pissed at me uh, whenever I podcast for over two hours, but um, right during Florence's bedtime. But uh, I remember your cousin, Nick O'Neill, good friend of mine. Um, and I've had this actually, it's like, and it kind of reminded me of this. I ended up working manual labor one summer, my very first job and it sucked. And I'm, and I remember talking about it with O'Neill and it's like, I really think, O'Neill said this to me. He's like, it really should be a rite of passage. Everyone, every man should have to work manual labor for a summer so they know to finish college. <laughs> and like, it's like he's like, there's just no because it just sucks so much. But at the same time, it's so it is awesome. There's no real upward mobility, I, I guess, if you become a manager or something. But uh, coming home at the end of the day and being exhausted and you don't have any homework, you know, and you can easily sleep or whatever is nice but it always stuck with me it's like it's everyone every man should do it so then they know to finish it's true college. i mean it's the same thing as like the service industry it's funny i remember when nick had that job my my boss i sucked at this job and my boss knew it and then but like liked me so he just was like basically like gives me the shittiest most time consuming things to do to kind of neutralize me for the day i feel like because <laughs> i crashed a golf car once in the car i think i've told you that story right yeah <laughs> anyway one day he literally goes to me he's like okay i got i'm building a new garage he's like these there's a new garage and he was like i want the door to go all the way down like the garage door so i want you to build a hole that's like 12 feet long and six feet deep and we'll fill it with concrete so it can go all the way down. i feel like he invented it for me to do and i sp- <laughs> and i spent the whole fucking two days digging this hole because the ground was so hard and so many rocks I had to break it up with a fucking long metal pole and then scrape it up with a shovel. It was so shitty. <laughs> Physical busy work is I probably it's so ridiculous. I think I've told you this before too, but the first summer I was home from college, my I lived like 45 minutes from where my friends lived at this point because my parents moved when I went to college and I didn't have a car and they would like let me take their car to see my friends. But every day that I could only do it if I shoveled gravel in their backyard for an hour. Again, not a specific <laughs> amount of gravel, but the time. And it's also like 120 degrees in Phoenix. Oh, God. And, and it was just to like punish me for wanting to go hang out with friends. And it was like, this isn't doing anything. Like, I think 
think technically there was some reason why the gravel needed to be moved. Um, was that your so stepdad who, who was a speedometer genius? It was my stepdad, but probably also more of my mom. Uh, yeah, my dad stepdad. would would do that kind of thing, too. He would, like, invent a task that was, like, not in service of anyone. It was, like, <laughs> right. because they felt like if you were enjoying yourself, it was somehow going to, like, right, inflate right. Your, your ego or some shit. I don't know. Oh, my um, God. Well, that's my final note is that yeah. finish college, boys out there, so you can not have to uh, work on work herding cattle and sleeping on a pup tet in a rainy place but if you hey if that's what you're called to do you should do it hey. and not finish college because i have an english degree and i'm probably gonna start working at whole foods <laughs> yeah i have an animal husbandry degree oh that felt like it was so dog whistling this guy's gay animal yeah. husbandry also Who did you, in that? Did you recognize that? not that i watch it much, uh, stranger that, things yeah yeah that yeah. that blew me away more than the other he's, ones because i was like he's old enough to be in this and look the same that really surprised me he um was also he gave me that same surprise in revolutionary road he's oh, also in revolutionary road yeah. i don't remember that yeah wow good movie we should also do that season two we should uh, like to read it um okay what's your final note on on this film or ang lee or annie prue or anything we've talked about oh finish ang lee anyway ang lee uh i don't know if i have a favorite ang lee movie i guess it's definitely this or crouching tiger um although i love the wedding banquet but um now he his last two movies he's been he went from life of pi to the high frame rate thing do you know about this at all uh oh the, the 29 point something well so the hobbit was i think 40 frames per second that was the first one where peter jackson's like we're gonna do high frame rate so as you don't know film is normally 24 frames per second and the idea is that by adding more frames in it's smoother um Mm -hmm. and that plus 3d gives the effect of like literally looking into a window didn't work with the hobbit no one really cared about it that way and it was kind of unsettling and instead of like taking a lesson from that ang lee made a ptsd drama billy lynn's long halftime walk in 120 frames per second in 3d uh that movie was a huge failure probably not because of that but i saw it at like the only theater in la doing that properly the movie stops halfway through because it's broken this is at the arc light in the cinerama dome and they tell us that because of the specificity of the technology uh they can't they fixed it but they have to start the movie fully over and it was halfway <laughs> over and they were like we can you can stay or we'll give you a coupon for a free movie and the three people and i that we were with they were just like yeah let's call it and we just left so i've only seen <laughs> half of that movie but it was like it's you like see the people acting it's too real you know it's too real um, i i know what you mean with some of these hd tvs that like feel like they adapt it to something where it's oh, like yeah. all of well, a sudden yeah. it's like, like a, the in-store settings those are like yeah. made to look good for sports and they look like soap operas for tv, TV. yeah that's kind of the case here but his last movie gemini man which is feels like a run-of-the-mill will smith sci-fi thriller from the 90s because i think it was written in the 90s but he used the same technology for it it's like a clone of will smith is hunting will smith basically mm-hmm. um, and he's gonna slap him <laughs> oh that's good uh, but keep that one name. for whatever reason keep your name out. will smith keep my name out yeah. my fucking mouth um he's the same person but uh <laughs> it that one they was similarly the 3d high frame rate and i saw it in that format and it was like cool like the action looked great and it was like you were there but it's kind of a bummer that that seems to be the only driving force for him is getting that right. Uh, mm-hmm. It'd be cool to see him return to something like this, smaller or different. Um, but yeah, great filmmaker. Uh, 
seems like a smart guy. Wonderful. Where's the princess books? Uh, I don't know. We'll go look for them. Um, I think this is this is my. That's cue a good Tanner. no done now. Let's leave that in. Uh, yeah. Good night, uh, Florence. Well, Tanner, good to see you, buddy. Um, you too, Matt. Yeah. Let's let's uh let's let's just keep let's just keep on keeping on. Keep well, I think, keeping on. I think episode nine. I think we have just one more for it's finish not, up season one. I will say we do not just have Brokeback Mountain. That's all they have. We have so much more. Eight more episodes. We- <laughs> That's true. All right. Later, man. Later.